Hi. Um, v, we got a lot to talk about. We do. We do. Um, I want to start with a confession. Uh-oh. Uh, I'm, I'm a 51-year-old dude. I don't think I'm in the sweet spot of your demo. You'd be surprised but if I, I took I that. love being on TikTok. Um, <laughs> and to me, it's not really a social platform. It's an entertainment platform. So we're, we're talking about social video. Is it social video? Is it entertainment? How do you, how do you think about it? Yeah, it's a great question. What is TikTok? Um, so we certainly think of TikTok as an entertainment platform that's really powered by the community. So if you think of the content that's being created, it is by everyday people, and much of the folks that are sitting in this room, I'm sure you're all TikTokers, um, but really it is an opportunity for people to come together and express themselves. And we see that with the diversity of the content, the diversity of voices. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really fascinating about TikTok is that pendulum shift that we saw away from what was the social network and curated experience to what is now an interest graph and a content experience. So when, when I talk to creators on TikTok, um, I tend to hear two things. Um, one, they love it, they love the formats, they love the freedom to play, and in particular, they love the ability to grow, where they can't find that in particular on Instagram. I'm not asking you to comment about other platforms. Um, uh, but also the monetization options and opportunities aren't quite there yet. Um, you were at YouTube previously, which is probably the gold standard on monetization for creators. What are you hearing from creators and how are you thinking about monetization going forward? Yeah, so obviously, you know, there's a lot of talk about the creator economy and we really see TikTok as the, the heart and soul is our creators. And so we want to support them through their life cycle and their journey on the platform. And you know, coming back to this idea of like the diversity of voices, we're also seeing that TikTok has fundamentally redefined what it means to be a creator. So uh, does anyone know who the number one creator is on TikTok? Kaby LeMay. So he, is, uh, he was an Italian factory worker um, from Senegal who ended up creating this phenomenon on TikTok and has over 150 million followers. He's our number one creator. And he's now the face of Hugo Boss. And it's just incredible that someone who does not speak English, I mean, talk about a global platform, who's been able to break through. And so we've really seen this kind of micro um, creator and this shift in, in the industry where it is now anyone can have a voice and it's no longer the Hollywood gatekeepers in terms of that access. So from a monetization perspective and, and when we think about the uh, economy of it, we're looking at providing those tools and opportunities um, for people to earn a livelihood. So we recently rolled out Creator Fund 2.0. We're constantly looking at the next set of monetization levers that can help our creators um, earn from the creativity that they're putting out there. So right now, creators can primarily earn by selling directly to a third-party yeah, brand. Obviously, brand deals. Um, we have like uh, different opportunities with doing things like uh, paid content, subscriptions, tipping, live gifting. Uh, so there's a whole host of tools that we're looking at uh, really to support people depending on their style of content as well. But we shouldn't expect pre-roll and mid-roll and post-roll on TikTok anytime soon? Not yet. Okay. Um, uh, one of the things on the creator side that's also kind of incredible is um, if you look at the, the Spotify and Apple Music charts, they mm. tend to be dominated by uh, bands and songs that have popped on TikTok, including songs that are like 
far back catalog at times. Um, it feels to me in 2023 like you are where um, the dearly departed MySpace was back in the late <laughs> 2000s, where YouTube was maybe 10, 12 years ago. Um, how are you thinking about um, engaging with the artists who mm -hmm. love the marketing value and the labels of the marketing value, but the labels undoubtedly also want to figure out how they're going to get paid for what's happening on TikTok. So where, where are things there and how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, music is certainly the backbone of the app, right? I mean, it is the, the soundtrack is what really drives a lot of the content and the virality of the content as well. And so that's where we are seeing like songs reignited and hitting the top 100 and, and breaking like records um, based on that popularity that they're getting through TikTok. And a lot of that is because of the discovery and promotion that's available on TikTok, which is, you know, it's, it's like the radio of today. Um, and so we really look at how do we provide that value for artists. So whether you're an artist making uh, music in your bedroom to, uh, you know, established artists, um, we're really looking to support music artists find their audiences and be able to really access and uh, build their communities. And that's what's driving a lot of the popularity as well. For me, one of one of the things I, I love about the platform, and you know, I follow a whole bunch of creators, but mm. I spend most of my time, for those of you who aren't on TikTok, functionally there are two experiences. There's a For You page, which is entirely algorithmically programmed, yep. and then there's the Who You Follow. Um, I'm mostly on the For You page, as I think probably 80, most, 90% yeah. of time is spent mm -hmm. there. Um, and somehow your algorithm is so powerful that it knows that I'm interested in pickleball before I realize <laughs> that I'm interested in pickleball. Um, uh, how, how do you think about that balance? And um, in particular, you know, as you've been described being the last mm. sunny spot on yeah. the internet, uh, how do you maintain that in a world where bad actors <clears throat> are trying to push disinformation, division, et cetera, through the platform? Yeah, I think this is the number one challenge, right? Which is, you know, we, we talk about TikTok being the last sunny spot on the internet. And for me, that responsibility of keeping TikTok as safe and inclusive and of an environment um, so that people can really express themselves and find those moments of joy and levity. And, and that's why we love TikTok, right? So it is a kind of, it's, and always on approach from a safety perspective to really safeguard that. It starts with our policies, the enforcement of those policies, the investment in it from a tooling and moderation perspective. Um, but you know, there's some real challenges and they're so dynamic that we have to stay at the cutting edge of the industry, which is why we work with a lot of um, you know, external experts and advocacy groups to stay attuned to some of those threats that platforms like us can face. So the, the CDC <laughs> issued a report a couple of weeks ago um, that's been described as a, a code red uh, regarding teenage mental health, mm. um, particularly with regard to teenage girls, 60% um, self-reporting, persistent hopelessness and sadness, 30% having contemplated suicide in the last year. Um, as a parent of three teenagers, um, a, a, a terrifying and kind of devastating mm -hmm. report. Um, you guys had an announcement yesterday on, mm -hmm. on some additional controls. Um, how are you thinking about balancing kind of being this incredible yeah. entertainment platform with the mental health of your younger audience? Yeah, and it's such a critical conversation. And, you know, I'm a parent myself. My kids are younger, so they're not yet on um, online. But 
it is something that we think about day in, day out. And if we think about the TikTok experience, one of the things that we're really committed to is designing an age-appropriate experience. So I don't know if many people know, we actually have um, really thought about that under 18 experience and looking at for if you're signing up and you're 13 to 15, your account is set to private by default. Uh, we have limited controls based on your age, so you can't access live streaming if you're under 18, for example. We also tailor the content, and it's kind of like a rating system, right? So we're tailoring that based on your age and appropriateness for what you're watching. But you mentioned the announcement that we had yesterday, which was essentially we are increasing our teen uh, screen limit controls. So we just announced that we're rolling this out. Um, so, you know, setting limits for 60 minutes for those under 18. And then we're also improving on our family pairing um, feature set as well, which basically as a parent, you connect your device to your kid's device, and then you're able to set those controls, see what they're watching, see how much screen time <clears throat> they're spending on the platform. Excuse me. <clears throat> so, you know, it, it is, again, like something that we are very much focused in on. And I, I, I would expect, because the, the settings for the teenagers, it's set at, I believe, an hour, and then they just have to put in a passcode and they can keep going, but it's kind of a, hey, you are keeps, spending a lot yeah, of time keeps here. Checking in. I would expect that 90-something percent are just going to type in the passcode and keep going. Is that, is that data you're going to track and assess? We will, yeah, we will be tracking it. We'll be looking at it. Um, obviously, we, again, we work with youth advocacy groups. I um, started uh, content... Uh, uh, advisory Council uh, a few years ago now with a, a group of really industry-leading experts across different uh, aspects, whether it's misinformation, you know, AI, technology, you know, all the challenges that we're facing, and certainly um, youth safety is one of those. Um, so we'll continue to do research and see how it's performing and what we can be doing, because a lot of this is also education, right? Like, how do we educate our teens or youth to really be safe online and what are the tools that we're enabling them to do that so tiktok is a subsidiary bite dance we're going to get into china in a minute um but your your sister app in china mm. Douyin, am I saying? Douyin. Douyin, okay, I'm close. Um, <laughs> uh, there have been reports that, that the algorithm there is driving more positive content, more STEM education, et cetera, to young people. Mm -hmm. um, is that accurate? And if, if so, why is there a difference in, in how educational content is being steered to young people between the two different Yeah, I mean, they're different apps, different markets, and, you know, TikTok's a global app that doesn't operate um, in China. And so we're really looking at reflecting the communities and what they're putting on the platform. And so we don't really have a hand in uh, that aspect of it. We're looking at as long as you're, you know, uh, upholding our community guidelines and creating this safe, fun environment, then that content will hopefully find an audience. Um, so we really do, one of the things that we really lean into, and I think is one of the magical things about TikTok, and hopefully you all agree, is like when you open the app, you're discovering content that you may not have otherwise realize that you're a fan of, right? Like, it sounds like you've had a few of those moments and like, oh, I'm a fan of clean talk, book talk. Um, you know, I'm a parent, so I get a lot of parenting content. But there's often times like pickleball. Oh, that's a fascinating sport that now is like, you know, resonating with you. So there's all these moments. So we actually tailor 
and and think uh, intentionally about the algorithm to really serve up a more diverse set of content. And so you won't see the same uh, videos twice. You won't hear the same kind of sounds uh, in repetition in your experience. So we, we really kind of tailor it to bring in those magical moments of surprise. So the, the ability to put the thumb on the scale of the algorithm, mm. I think, is part of what is freaking out Washington. Um, in the last few weeks, we've seen uh, the EU, the US, Canada uh, ban employees from having TikTok, not only on their official devices, but their personal devices. Um, yesterday, the House Foreign Affairs Committee took a, a really aggressive step, essentially to give President Biden the ability to ban TikTok in the US. Um, it's just a committee vote, but it's, it's, it's still a meaningful step. Um, what, what do they have wrong? What do they not understand? Why, why are they missing this? I love this question. <laughs> so, you know, we and, and hopefully everyone's kind of heard a lot of the provisions and investment, investments that we've been making as a platform to really address this, right? Which is questions around data, privacy and security, and then content influence and everything that we're doing on that to really safeguard our users here in the US. And when you think about the investments that we're making, quite frankly, they are unprecedented and industry leading. And there is no other open platform that is showing the investment or provisions that we're providing, really to, again, safeguard uh, our users. So I think, you know, from the perspective of these being critical conversations that we should be asking, the answer is yes. Should there be national legislation? The answer is yes, but it should not be held to companies based on where they're located. It has to be uh, an industry-wide conversation and not predicated on some xenophobia that we're seeing, right? So there is these kind of minority loud voices that we're hearing on the Hill, and we are happy and more than willing to engage and show how we're really leaning in on this. But I think the fundamental question is actually a different one, which is when we think about what this implication of a ban could mean for not just TikTok, but for the internet, is that something we're all okay to sign up for? So just in the last couple of days, the ACLU's been coming out with videos basically doing calls to action saying, look, this is an attack on freedom of speech. So let's take a look back. During the Black Lives Matter movement, TikTok was right there for the community to provide a platform for those voices. Those videos uh, for that hashtag garnered over 35 billion views. That's a, an important voice that needs to be heard. When Russia invaded Ukraine and the atrocities of that war were not being covered by mainstream media, we had citizen journalism on the ground that was happening through TikTok. That's a critical voice and information that needs to be shared. When we think about even most recently with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and like all of the kind of discussion and debate that needs to come about with that, we saw that taking place on TikTok. Actually, Chainsmokers, who recently just spoke, right? Their song, Paris, actually became the TikTok anthem for pro-abortion rights. These are all critical conversations. And so the question is, do you want those conversations to continue? Should they have a place in a home? And the answer for me is yes. And so, you know, if we think about this from the perspective of a freedom of speech, at best, this is uh, political theater, at worst, this is a fundamental attack on our constitutional right for freedom of expression. 
So let's stipulate that yeah. there are xenophobic elements, that there are anti-China populists who are, are you know, making, making hay here. There's an opportunity and they're just going after it. And mm -hmm. it's not about good policy. It's about, it's about politics. At the same time, mm -hmm. um, there are legitimate concerns about uh, China's ability to influence the United States, um, to build a uh, psychographic map of the U.S. and exploit that, um, and to access data. And there was a report from Forbes in December about ByteDance accessing journalist data on TikTok, which many platforms have had had, had this issue. Um, but if, if we if we remove ourselves from the extreme mm. and from the inappropriate, it seems that there's still a set of legitimate concerns here. Is, is that right? Are there legitimate concerns yeah, about again, China look, here? Look, I think we agree that there are um, safeguards that every platform should be putting in place to protect the data of their users, the safety of their users, the privacy, and those are legitimate concerns. But again, it's not unique. I mean, has history forgotten Cambridge Analytica scandal already? So can we really think of this more broadly as an industry-wide problem that we should be addressing? And I can, I can stand up and say, TikTok is leading the way. We are held at a higher scrutiny, so we have to. But we are leading the way in, in a lot of these areas around data security, privacy, and safety. And so any regulator, any cybersecurity expert, I'm happy to engage and have those conversations and show me another open platform that's doing more than us. And, and Renee DiResta, who's one of the world's leading experts on disinformation, was here yeah. yesterday and praising TikTok for, mm. for being more open than other platforms. There's no question you are... There's a lot more to do, but you're yeah. moving forward on transparency ahead yeah. of the other platforms, particularly given what's happened at Twitter. At the same time, um, you know, when I talk to my Washington friends, uh, I hear a real concern that President Xi could wake up tomorrow morning and say, I want to put my thumb on the scale. I want to create division in the U.S. or I want to access this data or what have you. And because TikTok is owned by a Chinese company, um, what, what is stopping that from yeah, happening? So, Why is that I not mean, a we, real concern? Again, like, so f for me, the question is, uh, you, you have this uh, concern around data access and you have this concern around content influence. Everyone can kind of read in, in details. So we, we've been sharing a lot of our um, investment. We actually invested $1.5 billion in setting up what we're calling the United States Data Security um, Division, which is basically safeguarding all of our U.S. user data. And we do that through a number of steps. So we're investing in the like enclave of that data, working with Oracle, Oracle's vetting and validating our recommendation systems. So those protections are all in place and they're already, um, if not hap happening today, happening very soon as we continue to build toward this roadmap. So any content that is being seen on your For You feed, the algorithm or the recommendation system, again, can be audited. And, and this is all the work and investments that we've been doing now for a few years. So again, like as we continue to tell our story and talk to the regulators, policymakers, show them the investments that we've made, I believe that we have addressed all the concerns. The algorithm is maintained <clears throat> in China. Well, <clears throat> so we have a global tech 
you know, we're a global platform. Right. We have engineers around the world. Uh, we have a massive engineering base out in Mountain View, as most tech companies do. So there's no like one engineer and one algorithm, right? We actually have many recommendation systems. Um, but the way that we will be, again, implementing this through our partnership with Oracle is that all of that gets validate, validated and vetted. So any changes have to go through strict uh, review process and, and set of controls. And you're still engaged with the Council on Foreign Investment in the yep. U.S. on mm -hmm. this question. There's been no resolution. There's no, there's no news to make today on any agreement with them thus far. Correct. Correct. Okay. So um, as, as, as we, we begin to, to run out of time here, um, you, you, you made a, a passionate and strong case against an outright ban. Mm -hmm. um, there have been calls to spin TikTok out and make it a purely U.S. company and, and separate it entirely. There are other lighter uh, regulatory actions that could be taken. We're going to acknowledge that Washington may not be the best equipped, the folks in D.C., to, to figure this out. Um, your phone rings as we walk off stage. It's President Biden, and he says, I, I want to know what you think regulation should look like so that the American public is actually protected and feels protected, and we can move forward with TikTok as a viable entity in the U.S., mm -hmm. but we're protected national security along the way. Everything that we're doing today, literally everything that we're doing, where, like, you want to know that your U.S. data is held within the United States. You want to know those checks and balances against who has access to that data. You want to know that the content is not able to be influenced and that there's checks and balances on the recommendation systems and there's transparency around it. So one of the things that we did early on was actually building out these transparency and accountability centers specifically for that reason. We're opening our APIs so researchers can come in and test our systems. So the idea of how we can stand up as good, responsible citizens as a, as a platform is really by opening up and showing people what we're doing. You have to stand behind your actions. And for all those reasons, I think we are not only um, meeting the requirements, but going far and above and beyond from an industry standard perspective. So and to your point about this needing to be an industry issue, mm -hmm. would you then respond to President Biden, what we're doing is the roadmap for federal legislation or, or regulatory action. There actually should be government action here or should we rely on self-regulation? I think there should be standardization in the industry. Yeah, I think it should be a level playing field. Great. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you.